It's really good to be here, and I'm so glad that you came. It's so encouraging to see all of you here, because passing our values on to the next generation is something that's very close to the heart of the Lord, and it's great to see that you care about it too. So critically important, especially today, when our kids are in such great need of someone that will pour into them to help them to understand how to make sense of this crazy world. So what we want to do today is to talk about, a little bit about how parenting has changed, a little bit about how teen culture has changed, but then I want to focus on how is it that in that context we can pass our values on to the next generation. I don't know if you spent much time thinking about that, but it is good to think about, and as Jeremy said, it's good for all of us to think about. All of us can pass on our biblical values to the next generation so that they can understand. And I can't think of a more important topic, really. It's, it's so close to the heart of God. So I know I'm talking to a mixed audience. Some people are grandparents. And sometimes grandparents, I think, don't realize the incredible impact that they can have on their grandchildren. In fact, I think in our current culture, there is nothing quite like that. I don't think we talk about it enough. Grandparents are heroes in our culture to spend time with their grandkids and to pass on to them values that are so important. I think we have some parents here too, and there's a great temptation as I'm speaking today that you'll feel really guilty <laughs> because there is no such thing as a perfect parent. We all are limited in our knowledge, our perspective. We all make mistakes. We're all sinful people. And so there's a great temptation to feel really guilty as we're going through. I hope that you won't do that but I'm going to talk to you about just picking out one thing that we can all work on and focusing on that and try to work on that one thing. The other thing that I can see is, you know, maybe there's those of us here who don't have any children and they're actually the experts because they know everything about parenting, right? If you've never done it. As soon as you have a kid, you start to realize, oh man, I'm a moron. I don't know anything at all, right? And our kids teach us so much. I'm thankful for Jeremy. Jeremy has two brothers and those three have taught me and, and my wife so much. We're so thankful for them. Parenting is a learning experience, and it drives us to our knees. It drives us to the Lord to realize how much we need Him. And so today, just want to um, get our minds focused on, on just one thing that we can all do, that we can improve passing on our faith to our children and I like some older movies, and I don't know if you remember this movie, uh, City Slickers. It was Billy Crystal. And there's a scene in the movie where Jack Palance has a kind of a, I guess you would say a quiet moment with Billy Crystal. And he wants to tell him something that's very important in life. So it's true, sometimes we get our 
focus on the wrong things and we don't even realize, what's the, your finger? No, it's the one thing. I think one thing that we quickly forget is our goal in parenting. And the goal of our parenting isn't to make our kids successful. It's not so that they'll be prosperous and rich, wealthy. Our goal is that they would be disciples of Jesus Christ, that they would be willing to lay down their lives before the Lord and say, Lord, my life is your life. I will do whatever you ask me to do. That they would not only be disciples, but they would be people who make disciples. That means they need to be prepared for the adult world. And sometimes we are very short-sighted. I know I am as a parent. And I look at just getting through today and making sure my kids are happy and that they are having everything that they need rather than looking long-term to realize sometimes it's the difficulties in life that serve them the best to prepare them for what's coming to, so that they can follow the Lord regardless of the circumstances. And I'm not really someone who's like a doomsday person uh, norm normally, but um, I have to say that as I look at the culture, and maybe you do too, it doesn't look like things are gonna get easier for Christians. I could be wrong, but it doesn't look like it. And I wanna prepare my, my children and my grandchildren for a world that might be very antagonistic to Christianity. I want them to be able to know that to love the Lord is worth it, regardless of what they're gonna face. So it's a different kind of a goal as a Christian, isn't it? As we have friends and relationships with other families, we realize they probably have very different goals than we have for our children. And I think that that comes across in how we parent. You know, we wanna talk about three things today. And the first thing I wanna talk about are some changes that have been happening recently in parenting. And I'm just gonna focus on one of those today, one change. The second thing I wanna talk about are changes that are happening in our teenagers. And the reason that it's relevant to all of us today is because even babies that are born right now, even little ones, this is what they're gonna be facing. So. We're gonna look at a profile of a teenager realizing something has shifted in our culture that's causing this. And I wanna focus on that just for a few minutes. And then I wanna talk about how is it that we as parents can pass our faith? How can we pass our values on to those that we love the most, to those that we care about? How can we do that? It's not automatic. Every one of our children, God gave them the ability to choose for themselves. And each one of them makes their own choices. So you could be a perfect parent, which none of us are, and our children still could make choices away from God and to disaster. And some of us have felt the heartbreak of what that's like. So we're not guaranteeing anything in this workshop, and I don't have three easy answers for how to raise your kids so that they'll be perfect kids. But I think more than that, it's a call for us to return back to our own faith in the Lord and to ask God to give us opportunities to speak to the next generation so that we can instill in them what we believe and what we know, knowing that each one of them are gonna make their own choices. So I wanted to just start with changes in parenting. And I, again, I, there's so many things we could talk about. I'm gonna focus just on one thing. And that is something that you may have noticed too, is that when you speak about parenting and when you read articles about them and as you're scanning on the internet, you'll see so many articles that talk about creating a safe place for our children. And in fact, in academia, this is a number one priority now. I don't know if, if you've heard that or if you know that, that creating a safe campus, not just physically safe from crime or other things, 
but a place where students can be completely safe uh, emotionally in vulnerability and things like this, which honestly is impossible. We don't live in a safe world, but there's a huge focus on this and I think maybe an imbalance in a way. Is it important to keep our kids safe? Absolutely, it's important. But something has happened, happened in our culture that has made this shift so far that I think it's a detriment to our kids. And let me just illustrate what I mean. You've probably heard of the term helicopter parent. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's true that a lot of parents, they take a stance in parenting that they wanna make sure that their kids are safe and protected. And so this term was developed that a parent will hover over their kids and they'll watch everything that they do and if they see anything that isn't right they're going to immediately correct that the problem is when your kid gets to be 27 and you're still helicopter parenting over them because they've never been able to live life for themselves they've never been able to develop the skill of working through difficulties or problems so is it good to to protect your kids absolutely and where is that line between protection and overprotection i don't know so I don't have an easy answer except to say that many people are noticing that we moved from helicopter parents to what people are calling lawnmower parents. Now the blades of a lawnmower, they're a lot closer than the blades of a helicopter and that's the point, is that people are overprotecting their kids so much that they're hovering right over top of them with the blades flying right over their heads and kids feel like they have no freedom of their own, no privacy in their life because parents have invaded every area of their life, watching every detail, so they've gone underground, right? They've gone underground and hide everything because they feel like they have no freedom of their own. Well, now it's gone to a third dimension, and many people are calling parenting snowplow parents because not only do they overprotect, but anybody that gets in the way of their child is gonna get plowed out of the way. If you give my kid a bad grade, too bad for you, I'm coming after you, right? If, if you disagree with me and my kid, if, you don't, if he's not the, in the starting lineup, guess what? I'm gonna come after you and plow you right out of the way, right? It's all with good intention, that we want the best for our children. We want someone to stand up for them. We want someone to represent them, to advocate for them. But if it goes too far, then what happens is our kids' growth is stunted. They have no way to, to develop um, the kinds of skills that they need uh, to resolve conflicts or to handle difficulty or disappointment. And so why is this? Why is this happening? It's noticed in multiple places, and I was really intrigued to find that a medical doctor talked about this, how they encountered an example with one of their residents. This is someone who's been going through medical school, so they should have great maturity, right? They're going to be caring for people. And this medical doctor, who was in close association with this resident, noticed that the resident was very reluctant to receive any criticism. To receive criticism meant that they were not capable, that they were uh, inferior in some way, and they just couldn't handle it. And this, this was her own words. I've been training medical residents for the past 15 years, and I've noticed a shift in how open they are to receiving constructive feedback. While the recent crop of residents that I work with are bright, dedicated, motivated, some of them seem to be under the assumption that they know everything. An example was what, when a resident reported back to me after taking a history on a woman with postpartum depression. 
he concluded that the patient was stable and doing well. Well, when I met with the patient, I saw subtle signs that the resident had missed. She was far from stable and was showing early signs of psychosis, which can take years of experience to detect. I suggested that we consider keeping a very close eye on this patient, um, modifying her medication, and even thinking about hospitalization. I think the patient is stable and doing great, the resident said. We'll have to agree to disagree. I was stunned. I expected him to be curious about my diagnosis and asked why I thought that the patient was beginning to break with reality. While he ultimately deferred to my diagnosis and treatment plan, I was struck by the sense of needing to appear that he knew everything when of course he couldn't. He was just still in training. And you wouldn't expect that maybe in the medical field, someone who's gone that far in advance. Another article is entitled, Take the Bubble Wrap Off Your Child. And it's talking about the fact that many college students lack the inner strength that they need to, help, to have self-confidence, to have healthy mental state. They report being depressed, anxious, needing medication. Additionally, they have uh, intrusive parenting limits and the child's opportunities to develop important skills needed to become self-reliant are absent. And these are just two of many articles. If you do your own search, you'll come across them. Why is this? Why is this happening? So it sounds like I'm slamming parents, but I think there's a reason. I think there's a cause for it. And if we can see through it, maybe we can come up on the other side and realize our role to protect but not overprotect. And this is really difficult, isn't it? I think it's because. Both details the dramatic effects that digital devices can have on today's tech savvy kids. It's called iGen. Why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood and what that means for the rest of us. Oh boy, lots of work. Author and psychologist Gene Twenty coined the term iGen for kids who were born between 1995 and 2012. This is the first generation to spend their entire childhoods with smartphones and social media. Twain reveals they're getting less sleep, postponing sex, and even delaying gas, getting a driver's license. The book is published by Atria, that's an imprint of Simon & Schuster, which, by the way, is the division of CBS, and Gene joins us at the table. Hello, Gene. Hello. We all sort of are clutching our pearls about their delaying their driver's license, but didn't we guys, when you turned 16, have so wanted that? Yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, it was the first thing you wanted to do, was go to the DMV, but he said they delay the driver's license, mm -hmm. they don't get a summer job, they're delaying sex, they're hanging out with their parents. Mm -hmm. What is happening with this group? Yeah, so it's so common for people to say, oh, you know, kids are growing up so quickly these days. You say growing slowly. But they're growing up more slowly, so with teens. So 18-year-olds now look like 15-year-olds used to in terms of, as you mentioned, like getting a job and uh, driving. Do they act like 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds? Well, in some ways, they do. They just haven't had as much independent experience. Um, but yeah, the driving one really struck me, too. There was one young man who told me, well, I didn't get my driver's license because my parents didn't push me to get my license, which to a Gen X are like me, wait, what are you talking about? It's the other way around yes. that it's the kids pushing the parents. So is it, is it smartphones the cause or something else? So with this trend of growing up slowly, there's a bunch of causes going on. It's a really broad cultural trend with um, drinking alcohol less and not getting a job and not dating as much, not having sex during high school. 
it's overall development has just slowed down. That teams are just taking longer. So the why question is always a little hard to answer with this, but it's probably, at least partially, because people have small families, they expect their kids to go to college, they nurture them more carefully, and then these trends started to accelerate with the smartphones. A lot of them have to do with getting out of the house. And when you're talking to your friends all the time, when the party's on Snapchat, you don't have to drive as much or go out without your parents. Right, so Jean Twenge, she's the author of a book called iGen. She's a researcher, and I think you could hear that she's talking about how our natural instinct to protect has been kind of like accelerated or, or intensified partly because of the smartphone. I want to explain why I think that is. Something called availability heuristic. I don't know if you've heard these words before, but it's when we can think of an example of something and our mind will trick us into thinking it's a lot more common than it actually is. And we all experience it, and one example might be with shark attacks, right? So we've probably all heard of shark attacks, seen Jaws, all of them. Is there three of them, four of them? I don't know how many there are. <laughs> this past summer, I don't know if you noticed, but there were news reports of shark attacks. And why is that? Why is, it, why is it that we hear news reports of shark attacks even though it's some remote beach in Australia? It could be because of protection or it could be to sell, right? Because those who are in charge of the news media know that people will tend to watch the dramatic, you know, the terrifying, and that gets our attention so they can, they can sell more and, but the result is that we get a warped view of what's actually happening. So this is an availability heuristic where we have all probably heard of shark attacks. We've seen movies about it. There was even a Christian movie about a surfer that got shark, had a shark attack. Anybody see that one? Right? Anybody know anybody that was bitten by a shark? Sometimes, sometimes there is someone who has. But oftentimes, no. Because shark attacks are extremely rare. The chances of being a, even brushed by a shark are one in 11 and a half million, okay? So just to put that into perspective, you're three times more likely to drown than to be brushed by a shark, okay? You're 30 times more likely to get hit by lightning than to have be attacked by a shark. But you wouldn't guess that because our availability heuristic says it's probably pretty common, that's why I don't want to go in the ocean anymore, because there's so many shark attacks now than before. And people might get that, and I've met people that say that, I'm not going in that water, there's probably a shark right in there. And we don't know if there is or not, but chances are no. But that has really warped our view of things. Now what has happened is that since 1980, these news reports which capitalize on terror, right, and the terrifying to get our attention, before, and some of you remember, we had Channel 3, 6, and 10 in Philadelphia, right? And so Channel 3 was NBC back then. Now it's flip-flopped and they're CBS, right? I still have to, like, in my mind, do that switch. Channel 6, ABC. Does anybody remember? You also had, like, UHF channels, but it was a special dial on your TV that you had to use. That's all the news that we had. It happened once a night at, was it 6 o'clock at night? We had our news report. And that was it. And so if you wanted the news, you had to get the newspaper or watch the news on TV. 
But starting in 1980, we had access to news 24-7, right, through cable television. And as that increased through the 80s and the 90s, we had constant access to these stories. And I always kid my, my wife because um, one thing that used to be true of Philadelphia news was they always had a fire somewhere. And we always kid, where's the fire going to be tonight? So sometimes it was in the city of Philadelphia, but sometimes it was like in St. Louis, Missouri, there's a fire. It's like, okay, they had to go that sometimes in another country because they had to have a fire on there every time. And, but now we, we can hear terrifying reports from all over the world 24-7. Does that have an impact on us? Does that impact the way that we view the world? Is crime really that much more prevalent now than it was 50 years ago? And studies show that it's not necessarily true, but that's what we believe because we have seen it. We've, we've witnessed it on the news. Now, what happens when you take cable television and put that right in your own hand so that all the time it's right there in front of you? Does that have an impact on a parent? And I think it has. I think it has caused us to be much more aware of the protection of our children. So it sounds like I'm really criticizing this overprotection I can't really criticize it because I understand. I understand what it feels like. The world looks like a very terrifying place, but I think we need a balance. I think we need a place where we consciously recognize we want to protect our children, but at the same time, am I crippling them by overprotecting them? Can I create a safe place for them to be where they can function on their own? And I'll be honest with you, I think one of those places where that can happen is through youth ministry. I think youth ministry gives teenagers a place where they can fly on their own, they can be more independent with the trips that they take and the experiences they have, the ways that they serve, where they can be in a protected environment, but they can fly on their own, that they can spread their wings, that they can find out what life's like, they can talk to people that are much different from them. Can that happen in other places? Yes, it can. And I think we need to consciously think about that. How can we keep from overprotecting them by giving them more freedom, not checking on every single detail of their secret life, but giving them a trust where we say, I do trust you, and we're building a trust where you can have more and more freedom without me heli helicoptering over you. And I know that's not easy to do, but I, I just wanted to plant that seed. And I don't know if for you, maybe that's the one thing for today that you want to think about is how that can happen. But it is a real issue in our culture. How do we, how do we lean into their, their need for safety and protect them and create a very safe environment while at the same time giving them freedom so that they can develop to be a, a fully functioning disciple of Christ who's willing to give up their life, even unto death, in order to serve the Lord. Boy, that's a, it's a big jump, isn't it? And in our culture, very difficult to do. I'm going to have just a few things that I'll say at the end on the, th the third point about this. But I wanted to talk a little bit also about our, the culture that we're living in with changes to teenagers. And there's a big switch that has happened even between the last two generations. As you know, there's generational studies and they're always dangerous because of the fact that no one actually fits that profile. We make all these characteristics for each generation, but you've probably noticed in your own, as people talk about your generation, you're like, I'm not everything and that's not true of me. So it's real dangerous to do that. We don't wanna put people into a box and say, well, you're this generation, you have to be this way. 
and all of us will come across exceptions to every generation, like drastic exceptions where you're like, they're nothing like their generation. But the reason I wanted to illustrate this is because, generally speaking, there's been a huge shift just between the last two generations, like we've never seen before. In the past, we saw changes, but they were very gradual. In fact, sometimes it was hard to even differentiate between generations. But in this last one, it's been a real drastic change between generations. And j let me just give you a few illustrations. Okay, so the millennials, or Generation Y, the kids of the boomers, a big generation, and this one is also, 25% of the population is in this last generation, Generation Z. Okay, uh, the millennials, very tech savvy, but iGen, they, they grew up entirely in a tech world. It's, it's just part of their DNA. In millennials, they communicated with text, but now it seems like in this new generation, they're communicating primarily with images, and that's much more preferred than text. You can see it in their spelling, right? And I, I find it even happening to myself, right? Because um, we see the image of the word, we know what it is, but we're, we're much more drawn to images in our culture in general, but especially in the younger generation. Millennials were curators and sharers, and again, we're generalizing a population, but it wasn't uncommon to see early millennials, uh, they, were, they were displaying everything on social media, even like their latest dinner, do you remember? <laughs> right, everything that I'm eating, everything I'm doing. It's not true for, for iGen or Generation Z. Uh, the, a large percentage of Generation Z has never ever posted anything publicly. Where millennials, early millennials, Facebook, Instagram, Generation Z has gone underground. And so Snapchat, where it's not public, is what they really prefer. They're creators and they're collaborators much more than, than sharers. Um, millennials were focused on now, and you can definitely see Generation Z is very aware of the future. And in some cases, the future seems terrifying to them. This has caused a great deal of anxiety in their life. The millennials generally seen as dependent, whereas this is the Katniss generation, Generation Z. They view the world as a dystopia, and they view themselves as someone who's going to have to be fiercely independent to face this messed up and broken world. College was expected for millennials, but you've probably noticed that many Generation Z graduates don't really see the need for college. They see the huge debts that their predecessors have accumulated. They don't see much benefit because they came out of college and didn't get any better job than what they could get. And so college is now viewed as more optional. These are some superficial things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Oh, oh, sure. I think we're gonna make this PowerPoint available, right, too? Mm-hmm. So what about Generation Z? We mentioned they're real digital natives. They don't know anything else. Uh, safety and security is at the top of their minds because of the fact that their parents, as I just mentioned, that availability heuristic and other reasons have helped them to develop that worldview. They are sensitive to other people's feelings. It's the most diverse generation in American history, both racially, religiously, sexually, 
very, very diverse, very complicated family dynamics as never before. And as I mentioned, very independent. Um, each person has their own perspective on what's right and wrong. So you don't ever tell me that I'm wrong because I'm right. And to tell me that I'm wrong is very offensive to me. Very uncertain, unstable. Their whole universe is completely fluid. So you can imagine what this does to their stability and the foundations that they're standing on. So I don't know if, as I'm putting these things up, if you feel like it's kind of a scary place to grow up. And that's generally true, not because they're living in a world that's much more filled with crime or, or instability, but because that's how it's viewed. They're virtually present, you've probably noticed, right? So they're always connected. For some of our teenagers and even children, they are addicted to their phones. Okay, so they, some of them recognize that, some, some don't recognize it. Um, we had a retreat with, we partnered with your church for a retreat, and we took all the kids' phones away. And that was like a panic. That was like, what? You can't, that's a crime, I think. Let me look this up, right? And um, some of the kids did real well with it. Other kids didn't do well at all. One of our students, when the weekend was over, we gave her our phone back because we had a rule, if we catch you on your phone twice, we take it. And they could keep them, but they couldn't use them. But for this girl, she lost it within like 10 minutes. <laughs> we gave her her phone back at the end of the weekend, and she, she kind of got me, like I, it was just me and her off on the side of the room, and she made sure nobody was looking. And she said, that was really great. I'm like the retreat, she goes, no, that I didn't have my phone. I've never not had my phone before. And then she got real serious. I've never seen her get serious like this. And she said, Matt, I'm addicted to my phone. I'm addicted. And it was a realization to her. And the freedom that she felt by being able to have time away from it was liberating for her. Uh, the kids, yeah, it mentioned in the, and Jean Twenge mentioned it, they're growing up more slowly. Is it that hovering? Is it the fact that it's a scary universe that they're living in? There is less drinking, less sex. Uh, they're staying home at more. These are kind of good things, the good side of it. The difficult side of it is that they're growing up more quickly too at the same time. So while they're, they feel like they're some, in some ways overprotected, in other ways they're underprotected. Completely overexposed to the world and all of those things we were talking about with you know, the fact that marketers can capitalize on terrifying stories making the news so it can capture our attention, and they're immersed in it. And Jeremy and I were talking just before this session about how their humor even shows that. Very, like, dark, sarcastic humor in their worldview. There's an epidemic with porn addiction, not only in their generation but across the age groups, and body image comparison epidemic, because if you think about it, they're 24-7 comparing themselves, which is dangerous for any of us. They don't have the capacity to process through that at all, but yet constantly comparing themselves with other people. People are calling it the greatest mental, mental health crisis that we've ever had to deal with as a society. And the difficult thing, and the reason I'm here today, I'm so happy that you're here. You can't, I can't tell you how encouraging it is for me to see you all here because one of the greatest needs in their life is that they've been completely cut off from the adult world. Even if parents are trying their best to protect 
and maybe even overprotecting, they still have a secret world and they are completely cut off from the advice and the values of the generation before them. They need you. They need you to enter into their world and to know them, to listen more than direct, to be part of their life and to learn about what it's like to be them. They desperately need that. So yeah, we've, you've all heard about the influence of social media and that has accelerated everything. Is it the cause of everything? I personally don't think so, but I think it is an accelerator. It's a multiplier because on social media, which they're connected with constantly, constant comparison and, and interacting with ideas that are not biblical, that are, are a warped view of the world. So just curious, Visco Girls, has anybody seen, right? And so you know the starter pack then, okay, right? And it's a subculture within our, within our society characterized by some of these features up here. And if, now if you notice this, you might go out of here and see a bunch. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it, but what I wanted to use it as an illustration is how quickly this has developed as a subculture. The first signs seemed to be in early 2018 and a few posts and things like that, but over the last two months, it has become super um, focused upon because of the criticism and the sarcasm and the humor pointed toward it, people making fun of it. So tastemakers have picked up on it and sort of highlighted it, and now it's everywhere. I don't, I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's just everywhere. It's on you know, major news uh, outlets. It's on, if you Google it, you'll see it all over the internet everywhere. Everyone's got a little video feature on it. A lot of it's humorous. Uh, the kids' TikTok, I don't know if you know, they, they're into that. That's all over that, people making fun of it. And the funny thing is, the girls that are making fun of this, you look at them and you're like, wait, you're one too. What do you, what's, what do you mean? What's that? Okay. I'm just using it as an illustration of the fact that with our, with our girls, the influence is so intense and will go so quickly. And you all can watch now how quickly this will fade back off the scene again and something new will take its place. Culture is changing so quickly. Boy, it's hard for our kids to get their feet down. It's hard for them to find any stability and they need to find it in you and in the Lord. And I think that's a key thing for us to realize. You know, as we look at a typical profile, again, it's, it's dangerous to do that, but yeah, we look at a typical young man born in the year 2000, and he's 19 years old, and he is um, attending a public high school still. He uh, has a sister, three step-siblings. He lives in a blended family, and he lives with his mom and his stepdad, and he goes to his dad's house on weekends. He plays about four and a half hours of video games every day. He has about eight and a half hours total on his devices every day. It's a big part of his life. Doesn't have his driver's license, has never worked more than 10 hours a week. His, oh, I should, I have a conflict on there, don't I? His mom will register him for community college when it's, you know, at the end of the semester when he starts community college because he won't do that himself. And he still attends youth group. Okay, so this is a profile of him, but I wanted to get inside his head a little bit as to what's happening inside his head. And I've noticed when he comes to college, he will very rarely raise his hand or ask any questions. 
And part of that is because of an insecurity that he feels. He's afraid to be wrong. And he feels like if he's, if he's wrong, then he'll appear to be very foolish and doesn't want to be embarrassed. That would be the worst thing in the world, to take a challenge or to take a step to be vulnerable and then to be wrong. For him, um, he looks like he's focusing on what you're talking about. He, it looks like he's looking right at you and listening to what you're saying. But he's been conditioned by his cell phone and other things, I suppose, and he's really having trouble concentrating on anything at all. In class or listening to you, very difficult to concentrate. He's, he's moved from generation to generation. Early generations were activists. You probably remember Generation X people. I remember them. I just loved working with them because I couldn't hold them back. If they saw a cause, they would come out in droves. And I just had to organize an event, and they would, like, change the world. It was absolutely amazing. But the next generation, they were also activists, but they did it with their finger, right? Oh, I care about that. I care about that. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what about this generation? Boy, it sure looks like for some of them, what's happening is that they do things, but only so it can look good on their college application and because they're being made to. Their parents said that's a really important thing for you to do. So it's not really coming from them. It's coming from an outside source. And I don't know if you can already see, but this young man feels very controlled, over-controlled, doesn't seem to make any choices of his own, has no inner drive to do anything because there's no need to. And this is resulting in a sort of personality that he's developing in an outlook on life. As I mentioned before, he doesn't want to be confronted. To be corrected would be very offensive. But if you do... He will agree and smile, but he will hate you, okay? And you won't see that. You won't see that side of it. And he's been conditioned because, boy, that would be, appear to be, to be vulnerable, to be imperfect, which is the worst thing of all. He's really struggling, and he's very, very connected constantly, but feels very lonely, very alone. And if you talk to teenagers and even younger, you know, even children at times, if you can get inside and they'll let you in, what you'll find, many of them will say this, that even though I'm in a crowd, I feel very alone. I feel very much by myself. Um, they feel like they, they are lonely and they, they wish there was someone they could connect with. And I think that's why this next screen is true, that for many teenagers, not just boys, we tend to think of it as boys, but for girls too, they're trying to fill that emptiness. They're trying to fill the void, the, the, that terrible feeling of loneliness. And one of the ways that's happening is with porn. And it's not working, but it has served to make them addicted. And the real root cause is that they want a deep connection. They want to find that satisfaction of a deep relationship. And this this temporary and terrible um, counterfeit has now come into their experience and they don't really know how to get out of it. Because it's secret, no one else knows, no one would even suspect. So there's no one that they can talk to about it and they don't really know where to go because they, they make a pledge, I'm not gonna do that again, and then they're right back into it again. So it's a real s serious problem, isn't it? And I think it has its roots in some of the things we're talking about. 
a lot of the change, okay, so what's the difference between the changes in generations? Why so quickly? And again, this is my opinion, but I think it has been accelerated by this, the advent of the cell phone. Because it's a multiplier and intensifier, I think that's why we're seeing the, the drastic changes between generations and in some ways, the fact that they feel enslaved. They feel enslaved by it. So Gene Twang is going to talk a little bit just specifically about the cell phone. In this video, I hope that you'll notice something, that sometimes the things that we say that weren't planned are actually the most powerful. At the end of this video, one of the interviewers is going to ask her a personal question. And when she answers it, I think it gives you insight as to what she really thinks about things. I thought this was fascinating. You write of the iGen's mental health. Quote, there's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. That's the research? Yeah. So if you look at these big national surveys of teens, uh, ask them what they do with their time. So things like homework, sports, um, reading, getting together with their friends, all of those non-screen things, they're all correlated with greater happiness. Mm -hmm. And think about anything that's done with a screen, texting, social media, uh, TV, online, computer games, all of those are correlated with lower happiness. You talk to so many iGens all around the country, and one of the reasons you say it's important to do that is to talk to this group at the same age so you get it from them rather than older people comparing what they're going through. Right. What was your overall takeaway when you talked to the different groups and compare them to the millennials? Yeah, so I hear from survey data on 11 million young people. It's been collected since the 60s and 70s. Then about 200 in-depth surveys and about 25 more interviews but in-depth. Mm -hmm. And really, I think the, the smartphone's one of the keys in explaining why they're so different from millennials. So, for example, that their mental health um, has really trended downwards. Starting from 2012, should they have smartphones? Well, that's uh, the question, right? So if you look at that link between smartphones and unhappiness or suicide risk factors or depression, what they suggest is it doesn't really harm them to spend, say, up to an hour or even an hour and a half a day um, with a screen, but two hours and beyond, that's when you start to see the link to these mental health issues. That's interesting, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. How did, one quick question, how did you, your mom, how did you change your own behavior with your kids? Yeah, so the data I analyzed that data, this is looking at screen time and unhappiness and depression, I took my kids' tablets and put them in a drawer. Wow. So there's a lot of flip phones at your house. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like you, Judy. They Right, so not putting all the blame on smartphones, but it's definitely a factor, and it's difficult in a culture where that's now the norm. How do you switch away from that? I don't know what's going to happen, but I've been predicting that this generation, there's going to be a revolution, and that they're going to realize what this is doing, and when they have kids, they're going to do it differently. I talked to a group of high school kids and asked them what we should do, and I said, say you have an 11-year-old girl, and her mom wants to give her a cell phone. What would you guys do? And they said, well... You know when you go to get a driver's license and you have to like go through driver training and then behind the wheel you have to take tests and you've got to learn how to use it? I think they should do the same thing with cell phones, that you should somehow teach them what's the right way to use it before you put that kind of power in their hand. That was coming from them. I was like, what a good idea. 
you know, but who's going to do it? It may take until they get to be parents before there's a, this kind of revolution. I don't know. But you can also see some sort of straight edge um, revolution going on even now where people are giving up their, their phones, going back to phones that don't have screens. And some of the phone manufacturers are doing that now. I know Republic is one that has a screenless phone for children, for young adults, for young, child, uh, young teens to use. Well, you know, you can see these factors in, in uh, the generations of teenagers, big changes right when the cell phone came into existence, right? Where we're, you know, having ups and downs, but look at the dramatic changes as the cell phone has served as a multiplier, as an intensifier, right? More lonely and some good things that have come out of it, but this also represents in some ways that uh, disconnection from physical presence. And I personally think too, the impact of pornography that has substituted for real relationships. The other issue with cell phones, which I'll just, just spend a minute on, is the fact that it impacts sleep. Many of our teenagers sleep with their phones. So the constant notifications, that are, they don't wanna miss one thing, it might be about them. So that's constantly there. The blue light that's emitted from the phones and screens in general has also been linked to you know, people having trouble sleeping. So this is an expert on sleep and said, if, you, if your child has technology um, in their room at night, take it out. That's, that's their advice. If your child does not have technology in his room at night, don't let it in there, right? So pretty simple. And, and maybe that's a new rule that we, could, that we could adopt is to not let our kids sleep with their phones. At least they would be able to, in some ways, be freed from it for that time. It's interesting, and I can't remember which Chick-fil-A it was. You may have seen it. Uh, one of my students owns a Chick-fil-A down near the Jersey Shore, and I think it was in his, that they put boxes on every table in the Chick-fil-A. Have you seen that? And if everybody in the family puts their phone in the box for the entire dinner time and you don't touch it, then you get a treat. You can go up and, you can go up and get a treat. I thought it was a really cool way to reemphasize the importance of face-to-face -face contact and spending time together. I had a video here. It's, it just illustrates this a little bit, but I'm going to skip over just for time. So how do we do it? it? This is a difficult question. How do we lean into great technology, great advancements, and so many benefits that we have, but at the same time, how do we keep the overuse from happening? I think it takes intentional parenting, right? And many of us, we wanna be friends with our kids, but we don't wanna be their parent. And I think this is one place where the rub's gonna have to happen, where we're gonna have to step in. It's much more difficult if now we're pulling back something we already gave them versus starting when they're young and having that in mind all along but I think it's a critically important area to speak with our teenagers about, to help them to grapple with some of these things, to give them more freedom to talk to us about what limits should they have, what would that look like, and for them and their friends, how can we make a pact to help you to develop away from a dependence upon cell phone usage, away from the comparison that's constantly there, and developing a disciple mentality to realize that there's person-to-person -person relationships that are much more important. This is going to take a lot of intentional parenting and grandparenting. Sometimes grandparents have more leverage. That's what I'm finding out. So, right, so how is it then that we pass our values on to our kids? 
And this is where I just wanted to focus for a few minutes because this is the most powerful part. Sometimes we underestimate the influence that we have because we're overwhelmed by the culture and think it's hopeless, but it's not true. Every study that's done is still showing that the number one influence on every person long-term, it's their parents. That's the number one influence, close relationships with family members, very, very influential. So I wanna encourage you, okay, what you're doing is extremely important. Some of you have teenagers and it feels like they're pushing you away and you feel like you have no more influence and so you're tempted to just give up. Okay, don't give up. It's just their way, okay? It doesn't mean that you're not important. Your, your influence is just as powerful and probably more powerful now than at any other time in their life. You don't have to invade their space to let them know that you care about them, but be present in their life with this number one goal, right? Prepare them to be a disciple and a disciple maker. Your model is extremely important. We learn by modeling as humans. We look at other people and we imitate without even realizing it. And the same thing's true with you and your children. The best thing any of us can do for our kids is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. It's the best thing any of us can do to fall in love again with Jesus, our first love. And don't be about all the busyness of all the chores like the church in Ephesus, but fall in love with him again. Rekindle the fire of your relationship with him. It's the best thing that any of us can do for our kids. And maybe that hasn't been true. Maybe for a long time you've been going through the motions. The most powerful impact you can have is to be on fire for Jesus Christ and to let your kids see how real that is. We can't fake that. Your kids see right through you. You, you can't fake it. Right? But if that's true in your life, and maybe for some of us it's a call, I know for me, a call back to my knees, back to repentance, to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to remember what's really important, my own relationship with you, and may my kids see a glimpse of my love for you and your love for me. The most powerful thing we can do, uh, I just use ABC as a model, right? Your alone time with God. Your alone time with God, critically important. The first thing that gets pushed out, isn't it? And sometimes we use other things just to check it off our, our list to know that I'm a good Christian, like I did my version devotional today, which took me five minutes and I already forgot what it was, right? Whatever it takes, I don't know what it takes. I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty, but get alone with God. Spend some, spend some time alone. Carve that out of, your, out of your schedule so it's sacred and nothing else gets in the way. Listen to him. Scour the scriptures until you hear God's voice speaking to you in the scriptures to say, here's my word for today. I'm going to remember. I'm going to put it in my pocket and remember it close to my heart all day. I'm going to live out this message that God gave me today. You know what? The daily impact of being in God's word and alone with him will be evident to your children, to your grandchildren. It will have the biggest impact, more than trying to hover over them and control everything in their life. The second thing is your behavior. Okay, so your alone time with God, your behavior. And what I mean is, especially when you're frustrated, hurt, or disappointed. How is it that we react when we're frustrated, hurt, and disappointed? That's when our kids know we're being real. 
and they'll look right through us and see what's really happening in our heart. And we're not perfect. We're going to have to apologize, right? If you're like me, we're going to have to say, I'm sorry I reacted that way. That was, that was not the way that Jesus would react. And our kids will be influenced by that more than any rules that we make or trying to do something superficial. And then um, our alone time with God, our cell phones, our cell phones. We criticize the kids constantly about their use of the screens. But did you ever look at yourself lately? Right? We do it too. We do it too. Instead of talking to them, we're like, yeah, honey, uh-huh, that's great. Well, how was school, right? Right. Think about your use of your own cell phone. What are, what are, they probably learned it from us. How can we change our habits? Put that thing away. Take Sabbaths from your phone. You're like, I can't. You don't know my business. I think you probably could, and I could too. Take days off away from your phone to get used to how to handle that thing. I tell you, it's, it kind of scared me when they first came out because I knew how vulnerable I was. I'm an addict, right? So I kept, I kept my flip phone. Jeremy can tell you it was like embarrassing for him. Like I kept my flip phone way past you know, time, and I only had to get rid of it because they wouldn't support it anymore. And I, I bought this one that they said was indestructible, and apparently it was because it lasted for like, I don't know, like eight years or something like that. But I, I do have a smartphone now, but if you try to email me or call me, don't be frustrated if I don't get right back to you because I try not to let it control my life, and I hope that that is a model to my kids and my grandkids. Our priorities, what is it that's important to you? That's what our kids will pick up, and we have to evaluate that. I think each one of us needs to take time to think about what really is most important because the way I'm living my life right now probably doesn't match up with that. What really is most important? And I already mentioned our relationship with the Lord, and I want to mention too, and again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, but it's so important, regular church attendance. I mean, week by week by week, even when it's kind of like, I hate to use this word, but kind of painful in a way, because it's, it becomes a routine. You're thinking, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm getting anything out of this. Well, that's my wake-up call. I don't come to get something out of it. I come to give. I come to serve. I come to meet with brothers and sisters and encourage them. And God's word will be spoken. And even if I feel like I'm not getting anything, the accumulative effect of it has a powerful influence on my life and my kids' lives. I want to make sure that we're making that a high priority to teach our kids that being a disciple of Christ is far more important than anything else in this world. And being connected with his body is the key. Uh, attendance at youth group, and people ask me, should I force my kids to go to youth group? That's cruel, like to force your kids to go to youth group, and my answer is yes, force them. Yeah, yeah, don't make it negotiable, and if you do that when they're young with the kids' programs that are here, and they're like, I don't feel like going tonight, that's all right, you're going, and who are you going to invite to go with you? Okay, that's the question. Who are you going to invite to go with you? Not whether you're going or not, and there's going to be times that we all don't want to go, right? but we teach them the pattern of, of putting our priorities high and living a life that aligns with those priorities. And I, I could tell you like a million stories right now about the impact of kids that didn't want to go to youth group and their parents, yes, they strongly encouraged them and got them there. And we all have our ways of doing that, right? And where they are now, right? I just have to tell you one. This one girl punished her daughter by making her go to youth group. That was her punishment. So you, can you see her face when she walked into the youth group meeting? Right? I can, I can read kids fast, and I'm like, uh-oh. Right? 
But you know what? We built a bridge to her. And what was the key was we went to the whosoever gospel mission on a trip. And when she got there, she came to life. She wanted to serve and help people. And she began to see like this is what Christianity is. This is sharing Christ. She came, to, like it was just like a transformation overnight. She was a different kid. Her mom couldn't keep her away then. I think the mom was a little bit of like, sorry that she did that because now she is totally into church and youth group. Do you know she brought her boyfriend who was a surfer kid and didn't really have much interest, but in a short time, God got a hold of his heart. Both of them came to know the Lord. Now they're a pastor down near the Jersey Shore, reaching all kinds of people there. You know, it's amazing how God, when we are faithful to him and we say, nope, you're gonna be there, how, what a difference that can make in our life. When they're not there, boy, there's a gap. There's a huge gap in their life. Meet a place where they can meet wise friends, where they can build lifelong relationships, where they can have experiences with serving that they just can't get in other places. It's a very unique place in our culture in general, even for your neighbors that don't know the Lord. Talk to them about how unique this is, to a place where teenagers are positive. They're getting positive influence from people that love them and care about them. A place where they can open up their, their, um, you know, their, their lives to people and share vulnerable things, where they can get positive, wise counsel. It's very unique in our culture, very unique. So make it a priority in your life. Just a couple of other things. Um, as parents, and again, this is another place where it's, it's like a lot of temptation to be, feel really bad about this because we all made mistakes, but did you ever think about what happens when two things conflict? Okay, and I'm just going to use two examples, like sports and church, let's say, right? So two things, they conflict. And if one wins out so quickly every time and you never even talk about it, what does that teach our kids? It's very powerful to them. It's very clear to them which one's actually more. We might say one thing with our mouth, but when that happens, there's no question. So guess what? The next generation, that's the value they adopted it, without even thinking about it. If sports and church conflict, at least, at least have a hard discussion about that. Right? You made a commitment to the team. They're going to lose without you, obviously. Um, you know, it's, it's a championship game. You know, how can we do this? Can we switch the game time? You know, right? At least, at least. But if every time there's no discussion, okay, another one is work as the kids get to be sophomore, junior, senior. If work always wins out upon other church events, youth group events, always without even thinking about it, and we push that, oh, good, you got a job. Good, good, good. Think about it. Discuss it. Is that really, is that really what we want to teach them? And I find as a parent, I wasn't thinking about that. And it became obvious at one point because one of my sons taught me. Um, he, was, he was invited to be on an exclusive travel soccer team. And they played on Sundays. And he said, I'm not going to do it. Well, this is going to cost him his whole career because that travel team was the key to being on the high school team, which would be the key to varsity matches, right? His whole future. And he said, no, if it's on Sunday, I'm not going to do it. He taught me, you know, and, and I, I think God honored that because he got a chance to play in soccer, uh, soccer in, in college, even though he wasn't able to play in high school. Well, one more thing, which is, well, not one more, a couple more, but um, did you ever notice that our kids learn from our under talk? 
They all know that we all have our rhetoric that we say when we're with Christian people and Christian families. But you know when they know we're telling the truth? Is like, for instance, on the way home in the car about how he didn't like the music or there was something wrong with the message. Sorry, Bob. And, uh, <laughs> right, that's when they know we're telling the truth. When we're in doing that undertalk. Do you know what I'm talking about? We're not even talking to them, but they're listening in. And I, I, I hope that all of us will take, take James' advice and be slow to speak, to think about what we're saying and to, to realize that that has the most influence when our kids know that's when we're being real, when we're in that undertalk mode. Really think about that. Very convicting, right, for me too. I want to see over the years of working with kids, and Jeremy mentioned I, I was 18 and God grabbed a hold of my life and I started working with teenagers right then. And I've just never stopped. I've been so privileged to be able to work with teenagers all these years. But one thing that I've seen very powerfully is that I can't think of any greater damage to a, a Christian young person than parents who are acting out their faith versus living it for real. When, when parents are going through the motions, and yeah, can we use the word hypocrite? Well, we're all hypocrites in some way. But when it's not real, I, I have never seen anything more damaging. In fact, I've seen non-Christian kids from non-Christian families who, who fare better with their faith than kids from Christian families where they had parents that didn't live it out because it can't be real. If they say it's true and we go to church and then it's nothing like that at home, it, it just causes this, this problem with them seeing that it's real. I just want to encourage you, as I did before, our faith, that's the most powerful thing is our own faith in the Lord. And secret sins that we are harboring, they are deadly. We think that no one else knows, that they can't possibly see that. It has a deep impact on our parenting. It has a deep impact on me speaking to issues and being out there as a leader spiritually. So, it's nobody in this room, but if you know someone else, right, that's, that's harboring something that's not right, and we immediately go to real devastating sexual sins or whatever, and it's not always that. Sometimes it's a, it's a criticism, a negativism. Sometimes it's a, a gossiping spirit. Sometimes it's covetousness or greed or other sins that are just as deadly, but we tend to tolerate this because they're all acceptable sins. Let the Lord search through our lives and let his, his blazing eyes of fire Go through us and show us, where is it, Lord, that I'm, that I'm not living all out for you? Open every room of your life to him. Let Christ dwell in your heart richly so that every room of our heart is open to him. And this will have the biggest impact on our children. You know, um, let our children have some freedom. Let them, let them explore. And this is difficult in a world that we're so fear-filled. There's a a headmaster from St. Benedict's School in Newark, New Jersey, who works with some of the roughest kids in our country, and they have developed some policies and things that they do with the kids, and it's really parenting. At the beginning of this audio clip, you're going to hear him talking about how he doesn't talk to parents, and I have to tell you the context. He talks to parents, but what he's talking about is when he's trying to help a kid to develop character. He's not going to talk to the parents about it. He's going to talk to the kids, okay? But just listen to what he says. It's, a, it's a still a challenge for us because uh, usually when, if there's a meeting with parents, for example, I'll ask the question. I'll never talk to the parents. I always talk to the students. But the parents always want to answer the question. 
But to get adults to realize that they should not do anything for the kids that kids can do for themselves. Okay. What we say, say, that, say that again. Is that for all of us who are parents and leading the next generation? Don't ever do anything for kids, whatever appropriate to their age. Don't do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. Okay. And uh, so we work, we work really hard at that. But the parents, because they're not in the building all the time, uh, they, it, it takes a longer time for them uh, to get it. I don't know. I've listened to that clip a bunch of times, so you probably didn't hear it. But when he said the second time, let kids do for themselves with it, you can hear people clapping in the background. And that was all the youth pastors because they're like, yeah, that's right. Okay, so, yeah. And it's hard for us, isn't it? But th I hope we'll think about that. Spend time in your kid's world. Get to know them without invading it. Let them invite you in. Get to, get to know some of the things that they're doing. What, are, what apps are they using? What do they think's funny? And you might be surprised. Um, and challenge them, right? I think challenge is a big part of growth. Think of ways as a family that you can challenge one another and do things that you wouldn't normally do. Serve in places that you never thought of before. Um, begin to reach out and to take a bigger role here at the church in volunteering and reaching out to people. And one thing I'd like to encourage you to do, because I'm trying to do it, is to write a personal creed. These are statements that I need to say to myself every day about my faith in God, about my relationship to my wife and my children, to what I'm doing, what my mission is in the world, that I'm gonna repeat every day to myself. And I'm working on this with one of my classes at Cairn. We're doing it together and each person's writing their own personal creed. And we've made a pledge that when we finish it, which is tomorrow, that we're all gonna say that every day for 30 days and see what kind of an impact that has on our life. To remember God's truth and what that means. Maybe make a, a family creed that you say every day. There's one bigger question, I'm just gonna end with this, is there's a bigger question in all of this, and that is the question, how is God using our kids to make us more like Christ? And for some of us, we're, we're living through a heartache right now, and, and our kids, you know, we're, they're not where we want them to be, and we're struggling over it. We feel guilt and shame. We, we look back and wish we had done things differently maybe. You know what? Leave all that behind. And let God use this in our lives to refine us, to make us more like him. And we have to leave our kids at his feet and say, God, they're yours. They're not mine. They were never mine. You entrusted these lives to me on the day they were conceived. And you gave them to me so that I could help them to be more like you. They belong to you. Lord, take them and work in their lives, but work in me, work in me first and help me to be more like you. So let me just say a prayer for you. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement we can find because of your power. This culture is no match for your power. And although we look at it and think how difficult things are, Lord, this is where you want to work. This culture has created an emptiness and a loneliness that you can fill as never before. So Lord, we invite you to, to start a revival. Start right here at Riverstone, Lord. May people devote their lives to you, to, to follow your ways, and through that, may their kids see the light of the glory of Christ in their lives. We pray by your powerful name, knowing that you can do it, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.